Okay, we're going to let the uh, little ones be dismissed. And I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. Gospel of Luke chapter 16. I want to pick up our reading this morning <clears throat> in verse 12. Luke chapter 16 and verse 12. Over the last two weeks, we've covered off on four thoughts, and they are these. Number one, it is possible to mismanage my relationship with my resources. The use of our resources is a moral issue. Okay, Money itself is not moral. How much I have is not an issue of morality. How I use it is an issue of morality. What I do with a little, I will also do with a lot. And this truth, generosity always follows heart change. It doesn't follow the change in your financial status, it follows change in your heart. When God gets a hold of your heart, you will become a generous person. If you lack generosity in your life in terms of your time, talents, and treasure, uh, the issue you need to address is an issue of the heart. And Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So fundamental to this discussion is the need for heart change in order for me to be rightly related to my resources. Okay? The only person that can change your heart is not you. It's the work of the Spirit. Okay? And I think it's very important as we work our way through these details that we understand that we're not talking about you sitting here and making a decision other than the decision to surrender yourself fully to the work of the Spirit in regard to your resources of time, talents, and treasure. And I believe that's something that all of us need to work at on a daily basis that we begin to live an examined life in regards to the resources that God has placed into our hands. If we're misusing our resources, it is an issue of the heart. Okay? And that's the thing I think that we just need as we move forward, we need to keep in mind. Verse 12 of Luke 16. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees... And this is the, you're kind of following along the flow of this text. This is the transition in the text. Okay, the transition moves from a discussion that relates to the disciples, followers of Jesus, to a discussion that now relates to the response of the Pharisees to the teaching of Christ. Notice how they respond to this teaching about using resources generously and in a way that honors God. It says the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this. And they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of man, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued amongst men, meaning the applause that they are seeking, is detestable in the sight of God. Strong tone of warning begins to emerge in the text. Now, here's the question that I want to ask you. Why is it that the Pharisees respond to the teaching of Jesus? Now think about this. Somebody's teaching about generosity. Somebody's talking about the importance of loving others. And the response from the leaders of the religious establishment is to sneer. Okay, the word literally means to bring to the individual speaking a hostile reaction that then demonstrates a rejection of their teaching. It is to turn up the nose at, to look down upon now, to me, I don't know about you, but I find that to be a fascinating statement that the Pharisees who heard this teaching about kindness and love and generosity actually responded to it with a bitterness, with a bristling. 
Fascinating, isn't it? The question you have to ask yourself is, why are the Pharisees so annoyed by this teaching of Jesus? Now, part of the answer is that it relates to the broader teaching of Jesus about the presence of riches and the thinking in the culture that riches equaled the favor of God. Okay, in the ancient world, that's the way it was largely looked at. If you were experiencing financial prosperity, you had been living somewhat of an excellent life, and the financial blessings that you were receiving were an evidence of the favor of God in your life. The story that should come to our mind when we think about that is the story of Job. When Job experienced financial loss, he was, you know, the Bible says he was a righteous man and one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. When he experiences the loss of his prosperity, what is the assumption of the part of his three friends? What is their assumption? Sin. Job, what did you do wrong? If you're experiencing a lack of prosperity, there must be sin in your heart. That was their assumption. Was their assumption flawed? Oh, it was dramatically flawed. Okay, but it was a mindset that carried forth in the distorted or perverted religious system of the ancient world. Even within Judaism, the people of God, there was this assumption that if you were wealthy, God favored you more, but He favored you more because your life was more holy and more pure than your peers or your friends. Now, Jesus is not very reluctant when He deals with the Pharisees. And Luke, as he speaks about them, is not very reluctant. The real issue, verse 14, he says, is this. The Pharisees who loved money were sneering at Jesus. Okay, now, let's be honest this morning. Okay, most of us here today, if, if you were filling out a questionnaire that said, do you love money? Okay, what would most of us say? Uh, be honest. Somebody came to you and said, do you love money? Don't give me the spiritual answer either. What's the honest answer? Yes. We live in a culture that pursues prosperity. We live in a culture that is deeply blessed with prosperity. And when you take away people's stuff, you find out what they're really like. Okay? That's why, you know, when people get afraid of revolutions in America, I'm not really afraid of the government taking over. You know why? Because I live in a country that loves what they have, and they'll stand up and protect it. We love it. Okay? And it has the capacity to infect the purity and integrity of our commitment to God. So, when you read the statement, the Pharisees who loved money, all right, don't automatically say, okay, they're somewhat different than me. Okay, hopefully they are. But they are not naturally different than you. They are naturally like you. Okay, so Jesus speaks to those that they loved money. Please don't slip out from under that and say, okay, that's talking about a group of people that's different than me. Pharisees were wealthy religious leaders who thought that wealth was a sign of divine approval. They loved money. The word literally means they were the companions or friends of money. You know the word Philadelphia means the love of brothers? The word here is philos, and then it's the word for wealth. They were lovers of wealth. They had this intimate relationship with financial things. They sought it. They loved it. They befriended it. It is what they lived their life to acquire. Okay, it was a driving force in their lives. Secondly, they sneered at him because I think they wanted to discredit Jesus. His teaching about money did not make the religious establishment look good. The Pharisees did not listen to the teaching of Jesus about generosity towards the poor and feel as if they participated in it because it was very clear from their lives that they did not participate in it. 
They thought that their wealth was given to them as a sign of God's favor. Therefore, they could use it in whatever way they wanted to because it was earned by them. That's what they seriously thought. That they were solely responsible for the financial prosperity that they had. Therefore, they could use it for their personal life and benefit. That's the thinking of the Pharisees. And as a result of that, the teaching of Jesus is flying in their face. His value system was a threat to their comfortable life. And it's why when you come to verse 15, Jesus speaks to them. Not to the disciples, but to the wealthy, religious, self-righteous people. So here's what he says in verse 14 or 15. He says, you are the ones. Okay, so there's this sneering going on. He, he knows what they're saying. He then responds to them. And I love the courage of Christ. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. Now, what does he mean when he says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men? Remember the other sayings of Jesus. He said the Pharisees love to walk around in their robes, in their robes that have symbols of honor and accomplishment on them. He said, you guys love to walk around like that. And you love when people greet you in the marketplace with signs of honor. Remember the story in Luke 18? It's the story about a tax collector who knows that his life simply is perverted and the religious man who thinks his life is okay. They go to the temple. And what does the rich Pharisee do? He stretches out his arms as if to say, God, I am here. And he begins to talk about himself. What does he say? God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not an adulterer. I give tithes of all that I possess. I mean, think about this. Just very self-righteous, self-assured, self-confident, self-fulfilled. And he says, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. The publican who was a thief. They... they they love to carry a reputation. They postured themselves to look more righteous than others. And Jesus, when he speaks to them, he just literally blows the cover off. You justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your heart. And folks, this is the staggering truth. As we talk about resources and how to deal with our talents and time and treasure, here's the thing we need to remember. I am not hiding anything from God in this area. None of us are. He sees our heart, he knows our heart, and Jesus is just simply saying to the Pharisees, you justify yourselves in the eyes of men because you can trick people. Folks, let's be very honest. You can fool people. You can make yourself look generous and self-sacrificing. You can make yourself look like a good husband at church when you're really not. You can make yourself look like a person who really cares about people when what we really care about is ourselves. We are capable of doing that. Jesus then gives this evaluation. And you can just imagine, this totally frosts the Pharisees. He says, what is highly valued among men, what you guys are living for, the honor, the praise, you want to appear a certain way, what is highly valued amongst men. And this is fascinating. It is detestable in the eyes of God. Strong. What is highly valued among men is detestable, is repulsive, in the eyes of God. 
he then goes into verse 16, and, and it's interesting because you, you, you really wonder what verses 16 down through verse 18 are really all about. Because he, he's just kind of exposed them. Now he's going to take the word of God and show how it exposes them in regards to a specific area. And then I'll come back to a connection that I think is tied in here in relationship to their dealing with their resources. He says, the law and prophets were proclaimed until John. And remember, the Pharisees loved the law. And they loved, they were Old Testament scholars. They had a majority of it memorized. Okay, and they could take it and apply it to all kinds of people and condemn everyone else. And when they were doing that, they were making themselves look self-righteous. Okay, because that's always what a critic is after, isn't it? The person who's constantly critical of everybody else's decision is self-justifying. That's what the Pharisees are doing. Jesus then pulls the trump card out. The law and prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached. That is the kingdom of righteousness without prosperity, but the kingdom of righteousness through the grace of God. Everyone is forcing his way into it. That is, you get into the kingdom of God by a radical repentance. Okay, now I just don't, I don't want to take all the time to go through this, but this statement, okay, people are forcing their way into it. It is a, a radical repentance. The word, it indicates a hostile approach towards oneself to get into the kingdom. Okay, the kind of heart that God is looking for is a heart that is broken. The kind of heart that gets the attention of God is not the self-righteous man who stands in front of the temple and says, God, I'm here. It's the guy who falls on his face, beats himself on the chest and says, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. That always captures the attention of God. You want the favor of God upon your life? Go to God with brokenness over your relationship to your stuff. Go to God and honestly say, God, please search me and try me and know my heart in this area. Because, folks, it is so easy for us to be self-deceived and think that we have a proper handle on our resources and other people don't. It's easy for people with less to look with suspicion on people that have more. And to think that I don't wrestle with that. Well, you know what? If your finances are tight, it is very easy for you to become judgmental of others. You have to go to God and say, God, please help my heart to be rightly related to you because that's what matters. That's what matters. Verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. All that means is this. The least stroke of a pen is the smallest accent mark in the Hebrew language that would change the meaning of a word. Okay, the, the smallest accent, comma, apostrophe, okay, it would be easier for one of those to pass away than for God's word to be violated. Meaning, to the Pharisees, you cannot escape the searching of the word of God in your life. Okay, so what were they doing? Trying to self-justify before men, not caring about the evaluation that ultimately was going to come before God. And they, they live such a self-centered and self-focused life. Now, then he said, gives verse 18. And this is, I think, what is amazing. They've, they're messing with the law in relationship to stuff. They're trying to create a certain kind of reputation for themselves that God blesses rich people. But while they're doing that, they're disregarding those that are poor. And Jesus is saying, you know what? The word of God is going to hold you to account. It is unavoidable. You, you, can, you can disregard it in your life, but it is not going to be successfully disregarded. That's the idea here. And what he does then, he points to a specific command that the Pharisees have messed with to justify themselves. And it's the command about divorce. So verse 19, here's what he says. 
or verse 18, he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I'm not going to get into all the teaching of this text, but I simply want to say this. The Pharisees had taken the command of Moses, had manipulated it to the point where they could do anything they wanted to in their marriage. They could get out of their marriage under any circumstance. And the reason Jesus brings this up is it's another illustration of their sheer hypocrisy. Okay, but their thinking is this. We've redefined the law, therefore the law has been redefined. We are self-justified because we rewrote the laws about marital relationships. We made what is permanent appear that it's okay if it's temporary. And they were self-righteous. They could have, have in a lawless way gotten rid of their mate and still stood before God and said, I thank you that I'm not like others, you know, uh, adulterers and thieves or this tax collector. Okay, and they were self-justifying. What is Jesus saying? You can't avoid the day of reckoning with God and his word. You can ignore it, but God cannot be ignored. That's kind of the thrust and why this illustration comes in. Okay? So, the illustration of their sin points out their hypocrisy. They are people that manipulate the law of God for personal justification rather than obeying it. Okay, now, I want to just give you four thoughts that emerge as we move into the story about the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, the first one that I think is revealed in this first section is this. Our relationship to material things reveals our true heart. Okay, our relationship to material things reveals our true heart. And what Jesus does is he exposes the Pharisees in relationship to material possessions. He then tells them that the word of God will not avoid it and gives them another illustration of how they're ignoring the word of God and altering it, trying to justify themselves so that they look okay. But then he comes back to the point of discussion. I think the point of discussion very simply is this. Luke 12, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Our relationship to material things, my, look, what happens in my life when my material things are threatened is how I really feel towards them. In our country, in the year of 9-11, okay, you, you saw a, a sudden shift in the emotional and somewhat religious makeup of this country. Some have called it the 9-11 effect in the religious community. Why did it shake people so much? Because their security and their way of life and their prosperity were threatened. The market fell apart in the wake of that event. And what did you find? You found people turning to God. But once stability in relationship to prosperity returned, what did people do? They turned away from God. Okay, and some of us did the same thing. When we watched the assets dropping, it deeply affected our hearts and caused us to disregard, in a sense, and belittle the presence of God in our lives. Our relationship to material things tells me something about my true heart. Please don't slip out of the text and say, well, that's dealing with them, not me. No, I believe it deals with all of us. And to address this issue of the true heart will always require, verse 16, a radical form of repentance. Everyone is forcing his way into it. It takes strong effort and deep repentance to get your heart right in relationship to these things. The blessing of this text, I think, is this, that God always responds with love to a broken and contrite heart. The, the psalmist says this, a broken and contrite heart, he will never despise. Because true repentance is what gains the true favor of God. 
You know what the Pharisees had? They had temporary favor because they had prosperity. But when they die, it becomes useless. Okay, now the story or the text rolls into the story about the rich man and Lazarus to help us to understand the broader scope of this discussion about our relationship to our possessions. Let's look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. Personal conviction on this text is, I think this unmistakably points to the people that walked around in finery and loved when people, you know, rabbi so-and-so, Pharisee so-and-so, they ate it up and they postured their life. In In spite of the reality of their life, they had this public persona. They hypocritically had duped everybody. And when they went out in public, people thought, you know, they, they're the religious people. I want to be like them. Okay, they had duped everybody. And I think Jesus now tells this story to uncover the hypocrisy and the devastating destiny of those that love money. There was a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen. And this is the statement that gets me. He lived in luxury every day. If you underline in your Bible, just underline the words, every day. This was the habit. This was normative in the life of this religious man. His wealth for him was the affirmation that God loves me and that I am doing okay. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He's covered with sores that he is is physically in devastating condition. But he lives at the gate of the rich man. He is longing to eat what falls from the rich man's table. And there is no indication in the text whatsoever that the rich man ever even acknowledged this poor beggar who sits at his gate just wishing that he could have some of the crumbs that fell from the table. And then this statement, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Sad and tragic picture. Not lap dogs, not pets like you have at home, but the wild pat dogs that I've seen in the country of India that I've seen in Indonesia. Rabid, sick, scavengers. This, this is just to say, this guy in the temporal realm had zero hope. A religious leader wouldn't even think of demonstrating any kind of compassion towards a man like this. He was below the lowest. He was as unclean as one could possibly be. And this man never even turned a glance in the direction of this poor man. This is the tale of two men. One who was favored in the culture apparently and one who was unfavored. But it is the picture of a great reversal. Because this is the way the gospel works. The theme of the story I believe is this. The absolute blinding power of wealth. The blinding effect of wanting just a little bit more and how deeply it can affect our lives. The first thought that I think emerges out of this story is this. Material things can blind you to what really matters. I mean, you think about this man's situation, the rich man. He, he dressed in purple and fine linen. And you just know from Acts 17, Lydia was a seller of purple. If you wore purple clothing, you were a wealthy person because that sort of dye was extremely unique in the ancient world. It was the sign of wealth. So every day, what did he do? He would get up in the morning, he would dress in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. Okay, that, 
very wealthy. Pompous lifestyle was the norm for this man every day. And that's really about all we know about him up to this point. Okay, he has the most exciting life possible in the eyes of most Americans. He's the guy that most Americans want to be. But he's blinded to what really matters. You say, Tim, how do you know that? I think for this reason. I think his wealth and his luxurious lifestyle had inoculated him, made him impervious to the plight of the man who sat at his gate, longing, hoping that one day some small blessings would fall off the table of that rich man and end up in front of him so that he could satisfy himself with them. This wealthy man could not see what really mattered. And you say, Tim, how do you know that? Because I think the Old Testament is very clear. You can summarize the law in two statements. Love God and love your neighbor. This was a man who loved himself and could have cared less about everybody else. Let's be honest. Okay, there are times in our lives where we get so self-absorbed in our problems and our issues and our pleasures that we, we say that we care about people. We say that we care about the place of those that have less. But do we ever really do something? Okay, do we ever really experience a life change and reach out and make a difference? Okay, this man is completely inoculated. I hope that you are not. I hope that I'm not. Be really honest with you. Going through this stuff, it requires deep heart searching. Am I inoculated to the needs of those around me because I am so consumed with the temporary issues of my life. I just, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to do this. Would you go to God and say, God, have my material things blinded me to the things that really matter most, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Personal blessings can inoculate us to the crying needs that are present all around us. And I don't just mean physical. I also mean spiritual needs that are present. We live in a world that is in poverty spiritually. We live in a, an area in our country where only 3% of the people around us attend Bible preaching churches. There is a starvation for spiritual truth. But many of us are caught up in the now. Okay, let's just be honest with ourselves. When is the last time that I strategically postured a day to benefit and to bless someone else around me? That I altered the direction, my plans, sacrifice, rip the page out of the counter that has all my stuff on it and put in there a page that deals with others. Okay, it's just easy for us. I think we have to challenge ourselves to wrap into our life experience a care for others. Don't let your life, your time, your talents, and your treasure blind you and inoculate you from the needs that are just sitting at the gate, sitting at the door, at the local store that you go to on a regular basis, at the gas station you frequent. Don't be blind to the real crying needs that are there. Because this man was blinded by his things, he not only was inoculated to the needs around him, he also failed to plan for the future. Okay, and I think this is one of the most devastating parts of this story. This man and Lazarus, the poor man, and by the way, Lazarus is the only man ever named in a parable. Okay, this man and Lazarus have something in common. They both have a date with death. 
That is true, folks. No matter what our social position is, we all have a termination point prior to the coming of the Savior. This man, because what happens? When life is going good, you start to feel invincible. You start to rest in. I, I have some money to take care of my needs. And we take our eyes off the ball of life that God sets before us. And we start focusing on things and the ball of life rolls away. This man failed to plan for the future. Look at verse 22. Just pick up on the text. It says, the time came when the beggar died. And this is just a beautiful picture. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Reminds me of uh, the Psalms where it says, Are they not all ministering spirits, the angels, sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation? That God, if you know him, has his eye on you, and at the moment of your death, he has a plan that will usher you out of your circumstances and out of everything you have into his eternal dwelling. The rich man also died. And this is, the, this is the, the ground leveler. This is the ground leveler. The rich man also died. He could not use his wealth to provide one more heartbeat. He was buried physically. His body draped perhaps in purple and fine linen. And everybody went by saying, what a life. I wish I had his life. But the text will not let you go there. Because what does the text say? One of the most shocking statements concerning hell in all of Scripture. It says he was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. And that is, I think, one of the saddest narratives in all of Scripture. And one of the happiest narratives in all of Scripture. Because what is it? It's the absolute reversal that the Gospel brings to our world. We think that those that have a lot are highly favored and have a bright future. But the truth is this. Those that sacrifice much in relationship to their possessions for the cause of Christ are the ones who have a bright future. Because your temporal possessions can't secure anything for you. They can give you benefits, but the benefits are always at best temporal. And the pain that you experience in life is always temporal. The suffering and sacrifice that you endure to advance the cause of Christ is always temporary. And one day there will be an incredible reversal for every Christian who pursues a life for the glory of God by the use of their resources. Death will not be for them a point of sorrow. It will be for them a point of great joy. My third thought is this from verses 22 and 23. Material things provide temporary benefits. Okay, let's, let's be sure that we understand why it is so attractive to want more. Why it is easy to have our lives dominated by a desire for a little bit more. Because it does help life to be a little bit better. But it's better in the temporary sense. Alright, and that's the part we just keep your eye on the ball. Okay? You can't take it with you, but someone has joked, yes, but it helps. Okay, it's... When it's there, it, it does it ease things. The answer is yes, but don't trust in it. Don't think that it has permanent and eternal consequence. It can, 
when it is used rightly. So the third thought is this. Material things provide temporary benefits. I want you to drop down then to verse 24. He called to Father Abraham and said, Have pity on me. Send Lazarus. Think about this. The unclean man. Send him to serve me. To dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember... In your lifetime, you received good things. You enjoyed good things. And Lazarus got nothing. Only bad things. But now he is comforted. And you are in agony. Wealth cannot secure your destiny. But it can keep you from heaven. Wealth cannot secure your destiny. But it does have the capacity to keep you from heaven. That to me is an astonishing truth. It promises so much, but it can only provide things that have temporary benefit. And so the psalmist, in response to this, says something like this. Psalm 62 and verse 10, he says, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Proverbs 23 verse 4, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Always constantly thinking, what can I do to get a little more? What investment can I make that would make a little bit more? What are you doing with your investments? Because mine's not doing it. I want to get a little bit more. What does he say? The writer of Proverbs is saying, don't wear yourself out to get rich. Have wisdom to show restraint. Folks, look, in my personal life, I wish I knew this younger. Have wisdom to think through purchases, to think through the use of your resources. Because what we're thinking is, if I acquire this, this will produce a higher degree of satisfaction and joy in my life. But please remember, it's temporary. And so the writer of Proverbs says, don't wear yourself out. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, because they will be gone. They will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky, just like an eagle. Our country has watched that. In the last 10 years, if you were invested in the stock market, you have watched your investments produce a flat zero or a negative. Okay, why? Because the unprecedented wealth that Greenspan, Greenspan spoke about has been evaporating for 10 years. You know what the writer of Proverbs and Psalms is saying? Don't set your heart on it. Don't let it think that it brings personal, permanent benefit because that is exactly what the rich man thought. And I think the warning from the text is profound and clear. Jesus is saying, do not be like him. Psalm 49, verse 16. Do not be overawed when a man goes rich. Meaning, and how we do this, we honor success. We talk about successful people. And we, I think we just need to be careful that we don't let ourselves get sucked in. Look, I, here's what I, I believe personally. There are people that God can trust with abundance. I'm not one of them. And I, I realize as I look, I watch in my life the people that God bless, and I say, God, it, you are incredibly wise in the context of church life. But the people that you entrust with more, you are incredibly wise. Don't be overawed when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. The rich man died. And in hell, it's an echo of Psalm 63 and Psalm 49. Just to show us, to remind us 
that when it increases, don't set your heart on it. It says to young people in our church, don't think that happiness in life is related to your financial position. Does it help? Yes, let's be honest. Okay, it's why you go out and work to get a paycheck to take, take care of your needs. And you should. And you should do your very best. But when God blesses, don't let it capture your heart because its benefit and effect is temporary. We all face an unavoidable in our life or an unavoidable event in our life that will in fact change everything. Your relationship to your resources is profoundly temporal. Would you pick up with me in verse Let's pick up in verse uh, 24. He asked for Father Abraham to send Lazarus to him. Verse 25, Abraham replied, Son, in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. He is now comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, a great chasm has been, in the perfect tense, fixed. It is an unchangeable chasm. Your For the rich man, his financial benefits were temporary. His eternal state, clearly indicated in the text, is permanent. Those that want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered. And this this man's value system has been shaken by his eternal destiny. When the reality of the temporary nature of his benefits sinks in, what does he do? He starts to think about, how can my family know God? And what does he say? I have a set of brothers. He's probably wealthy from the same family. And he starts thinking about their eternal destiny. Why? Because when God shakes your world, and when you get a proper perspective of your financial things, it will alter your heart. Eternity altered this man's heart. The loss of his resources caused him, forced him to meditate on what really mattered. Sadly for him, in the midst of eternal loss. And so he answers, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Now what is his assumption? If Lazarus, who sat at my gate, and I think, I think implied is the brothers knew about this man. He sat there apparently on a regular basis. If my brothers see Lazarus walking down the street, what's his assumption? Oh, they'll fall on their face and repent, and they'll get saved. They'll have a right relationship with their resources. Notice what the text says. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Goes back to the previous statement that the Pharisees were trying to skirt the law of God, right? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God spoken. Let them listen to them. Oh, no, Father Abraham, he said. What does he know? He knows that knowing the truth of God does not necessarily change your heart. Jesus later says in this text, he says, if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. Why? Because that is how blinding resources and material possessions can be. Folks, please understand this. If you understand the gospel, it is because God poured out his free and rich grace into your heart and he opened your eyes so that when you heard the gospel, you found faith to believe. It did not come simply from evidence. This text argues strongly against it being simply a decision I made. 
No. If your heart is rightly related to material possessions, it's because God has done a work in your heart. You, so it's not simply me making a choice. No, I need to give to God one thing, radical repentance. Force your way into the kingdom of God. The, the picture is that you would go to God and say, God, I confess my brokenness. I see your holiness. Save me. And when he does, he reorients your relationship with, with material things. Father Abraham, if someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Because that is how blinding the temporal, material, prosperous realm is. How many of you have ever had someone say to you, if you could show me this, then I would believe? You ever had someone say that? Well, they think that if you showed me something, well, then I would believe. What does that assume? That assumes that my fallen human heart has an inkling or desire for righteousness. This text argues against that. You know what my fleshly heart wants? It wants material things. It wants temporary blessings and benefits. It thinks that this is it. It's only when the Spirit of God illuminates the heart, changes the heart by grace through faith, that all of a sudden we see life for what really is and we see what really matters. We all face an avoidable and unavoidable event that will change everything. I think the last thought that emerges out of this text this morning is this. The proper use of material things leads to eternal joy and benefit. I read for you Luke 18. Because you have to think of the disciples listening to this story, stunned by the 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 the, the the nature of eternity, a conscious, permanent, and unchangeable dwelling. The divide between heaven and hell is absolute and eternal. The disciples have trusted in Christ. They've sacrificed much for Him. And what is the question that lurks in their mind? Luke 18, verse 28, I think captures the question that lurks in the mind of the person who uses his resources properly. Peter said to the Lord, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. You see, what's the concern that every believer has? This is the struggle. If, if I give in the way that I believe the Bible tells me to give, it's going to require faith. Let me just be very, very honest. Okay, I did a calculation this morning. I went and looked up the median income in Warren County, New Jersey, household income. You know what it is? $74,000. Okay, if someone says, okay, God has affected my heart to the degree that I think I should practice biblical giving, which is regular, generous, and proportionate. For me personally, I believe in tithing as a starting point. Okay, it's just my personal conviction. I'm not telling you what to do. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, I read through that this week. He says, I'm not giving you this by way of command. But I believe the principle of tithing is carried throughout Scripture. Okay? If you decide to tithe and you make the medium income in this country of $74,000 and you give $7,400 a year away to the work of God and you do that for 40 years of your work life, you know how much money you gave away? I'll, I'll, I'll quote from memory. $296,000. Okay? Now, I never thought about it that way before, to be honest with you. Okay? I was like, you know what that means? It means that a generous, proportionate, regular pattern of giving to the work of God is going to require a deep 
degree of faith. That's a lot of new cars. All right, that's a, a whole lot of chocolate. Okay? It's a lot of a lot. Okay? If you choose to give to the work of God, what are you doing? You know what Jesus says to Peter? You're laying up treasure in heaven. The proper use of your resources will prepare you for the future. Here, I think, is the most stunning truth out of this whole thing. Lazarus was ready to die. He was ready to die. The rich man was ready to live, but could not purchase another day, not even another second. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Lazarus died. And as a poor man, obviously had a relationship with God, is carried off into God's presence. There's a great country song. It's called, Live Like You Were Dying. Kind of changed one word in that. Live like you are dying. Because you are. You have an unavoidable appointment with death. You can't take your resources, Randy Alcorn says, with you, but you can send them on ahead. That's the promise here. Folks, here's what I would love for every Christian in our church. I would love for us to be so devoted to the generous use of our resources that when the day of death comes or when terminal illness falls down into our life as, I don't want to say a sentence, but as, as an evaluation of our health, we find out that you are terminally ill. I would love for us to be able to say, I thank God that I lived my life the way I did. I thank God that I prepared for the future in the use of my temporal things. And I'm going to tell you something. It's going to cost you. It will cost you. I will not hide that from you. And I'm going to tell you this. It will not guarantee temporal benefits today as some false preachers say. But I do believe this with all my heart. Based on 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 9. If you are generous, God will increase your capacity to be generous. I think that is the unavoidable promise of Scripture. So I call you this morning to think about these four thoughts. Remember that your relationship to material things reveals your true heart. Material things can blind you to what really matters. Don't let it happen. You have to resist and fight the tendency. Remember that material things provide temporary benefits and they're given by God for that purpose. But every benefit they provide is temporary. On the day of your death, you leave it all behind. But the proper use of your material things can lead to an eternal benefit. That's why Paul could say this. He was a Pharisee. You know what he was? He was a very rich man. As he gets to the end of his life as a Christian, where is he? He's in prison. What does he have? Nothing. Hey Paul, how are your investments doing? Can you even, can you imagine Paul calling Timothy and saying, hey Timothy, how much money do I have left in my bag? Can you even imagine it? No, you know what you find? Philippians chapter 1. He's wrestling with, I could stay here, I could go there. And it is not a problem. Why? Because he had understood the temporary nature of his earthly blessings and benefits. He was rightly related to them. Therefore, in the generous use of them, he was prepared for the future. He could smile at the possibility of death. Folks, that's the way I want to end my life. I don't know that I will. God's going to have to do a lot of work in this heart to get it rightly related, rightly reoriented. I don't even know what it means in my own life. But can I ask you to do this? Would you pray to God and say, Father, would you please rightly align me to my resources? 
would you allow me to look at the real cost if I choose to give to your work in a proportionate, generous, and regular way? Would you let me just look at the number and say, God, I'm okay with it. I'm going to trust you. So that the work of God in our community doesn't have to ever beg for resources. I never, as a pastor, want to do that. I ever want to be a church that's all about money. I don't ever want it to be that way because it would steal the joy out of our lives. The rich man died. After leaving everything behind in hell, he opened up his eyes, being in torment. Do you know Christ? Have you experienced his grace? Have you sensed him knocking at the door of your heart, saying, trust me? For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, so that no one can boast. Humble and contrite heart, he will not despise. If you know him, my challenge to you this morning is going to be this. In the quietness of your heart, would you examine your relationship to resources? Some of you college kids, why do you want what you want? That's the question you've got to ask. Why do I want the things that I want? Why do I want the financial blessings? What will I do when I get them? Make up your mind today. If you don't make up your mind today, I'm going to tell you something. It is very hard to get out of a rut in your spiritual life. It is very, I thought of this this morning as I was, I was writing another sermon because that's what happens to my mind. I was working on something else. It is so hard for us to break entrenched patterns. And I know when I talk about this topic, you know what? I know you are wrestling with it. You're just, we're all just like the Pharisees, aren't we? <sighs> they turn up their nose, they sneer, they, they don't like the model of relating to resources that Jesus gives. May God by His Spirit, cause us to love what He loves. And may He brightly reorient and align our hearts so that when we come to the day of death, we can be like Paul and say, I don't know. Go home and be with God. Enjoy the glory of heaven. Stay here and serve others. Paul's like, I really don't know what to do. May God bring us to the end of our lives with that blessed ambivalence. That says, you know what, it would be great to be home. All the, you know, Lazarus, all the wounds are gone. Healed and in God's presence. Where there is fullness of joy. Would you bow your heads with me this morning, Father, as we...